Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you will be encouraged and empowered by this week's message and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. Bring our hearts to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to speak to us, to shape us, to transform us. And um, I believe that it's going to happen tonight as we come with humility to receive what it is I believe the Lord wants to say to us. So let's begin in prayer, then we're going to jump right in. So Father, we thank you for the time we've had together tonight, this place of worship that you've invited us into. Lord, as Pastor Stacy gave language to, to approach as Levites to minister to your heart. It's such a joy, such an honor that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, tonight, as our hearts have been open to minister to you, I ask that we would also have receptivity to receive from you, to receive from your word. As the Bible says in the book of James, that we would receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. We come with meekness, with humility, with receptivity for everything you want to speak to us tonight, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, eventually we're going to make our way to Matthew chapter 6, verse number 6. And we're going to camp out there for a while, but we're going to hit a few other scriptures before we get there. So if you're taking notes tonight, which I encourage you to do, this is going to be much more of a teach than a preach, all right? Much more of a teaching than a preaching session tonight. Uh, you may want to put at the top of your page there, Matthew 6, 6, because that's the verse we're really going to dive into. But we're going to hit some other verses on our way to Matthew 6, 6. But first, let me start with this big picture question, and it's the question we're going to answer throughout the rest of the evening. Here's the question. What do you do after the encounter? What do you do after the encounter. If, you're, if you are familiar with the culture of the ramp, the values of the ramp, you know that we really treasure those moments in the presence of God that we refer to as encounters. Now an encounter is not just a, a, an emotional sensation, it's a moment of what we call revelation, where all of a sudden God, the reality of God invades your heart. The, the, the tangible expression of who God is suddenly goes from being some kind of philosophy that you're trying to grasp mentally and it becomes a reality on the inside of who you are. In the Bible, David, one of the kings of Israel, described that moment like this. He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which is something God gave to the children of Israel where the mercy seat was. And it says, that is the place where your presence dwells and your name is proclaimed. Your, your presence dwells there and your name is proclaimed. In other words, what David is saying is, I not just experience who you are, but I have a greater understanding of who you are when I'm in your presence. That's what I call revelatory encounters. An encounter that brings a greater understanding of who God is. 
And here within the culture of the ramp, we value those moments because in our, in our sort of value system, we say like this, awakening begins with an encounter. You wake up to the beauty of God, the reality of God, the commandments of God, the salvation of God, when you have a moment of revelation. When you, what the Bible says, when you taste and see that he is good. However, I know many of you have had the same experience I had for years within church or within um, th this atmosphere of the presence of God is this, this, this dilemma. But what do I do after the encounter? I have a moment in God's presence that is real, it is rich, it is undeniable, and, and I may capture it in a journal, I may tell my friends about it, or I may just treasure it up in my heart. And many times in those moments of encounter, I not only experience God, but I say yes to a fresh call from God. Sometimes it's in an altar after I hear a preach, or sometimes it's after I'm in the Word. I, I sense a fresh call in my heart that is accompanied by an unusual kind of presence. And in my heart I say yes, but sometimes the next day, the next week, the next month, I look at my life and I compare it to the encounter, and the two don't always seem to match. In other words, the yes I say to God at the altar doesn't always find translation into my daily actions. And if we're not careful, we'll allow the incongruence between the encounter and the lifestyle, we can allow that to create discouragement and disillusionment in our hearts. And if we're not careful, we'll say things to ourselves like, well, I guess that wasn't real. I guess it was just an emotional moment. I guess, just, I guess I just got caught up in the hype of the music or the atmosphere of the people around me. And if we're not careful, we will allow our own minds to deceive us into thinking what we experienced was not real. But what I want to tell you is those encounters are real. The problem is not the reality of the encounter. It's simply that we need greater instruction about what to do after the encounter. We just simply need to renew our minds according to the kingdom of God. And we need to learn from scripture what it looks like to go from a moment of encounter into the longevity of a lifestyle. What do you do after the encounter? Now, I want to give you the answer up front. We're going to look at some reference points in scripture. And then I want to teach for just a few moments on how to apply the answer. So here's the answer up front. What do you do after the encounter? What do you do after you experience a radical call and you say yes to it? How does that get translated into your lifestyle? Here's the answer. You answer the radical call through a lifestyle of simple devotion. Sometimes when I give people that answer, it feels a little disappointing. You answer the radical call of God, of discipleship, the lifestyle of simple devotion. I wanted something a little more spectacular. Because the moment was so spectacular, I want something spectacular to do to sustain the moment. And here's what I have found about longevity in walking with God. Longevity in walking with God is not occasionally applying spectacular things. It's consistently applying elementary things. It's not every now and then doing something sensational in the name of God. 
in order to prove to ourselves we are radical disciples, right? Now, I'm not preaching for or against tattoos, but sometimes it's like the way in which I translate that moment is I get to get a fresh tattoo. That's really audacious. Oh, okay, I guess that's fine. I'm not like preaching against that, but, but every now and then doing something extreme or spectacular and sensational that is not the earmark of radical discipleship. The earmark of radical discipleship is your response to that moment in his presence is then followed by a lifestyle of consistent, simple devotion. And in that place, we find ourselves being transformed so that the reality of our daily lives matches the reality of our encounters. So let's look at this in Scripture. The reason I can say this confidently is because Scripture gives us this kind of framework. Now, I'm, I'm gonna, sorry to per, burst your bubble here, but everyone in the Bible is not a hero. Actually, hardly anyone is. The only one is Jesus as the perfect hero. However, outside of Jesus, the Bible does give us reference points for activities that are pleasing to God. I'm going to talk about three of them from the Old Testament. Again, none of them are perfect. None of these characters are perfect. They all have their own issues and things. No one outside of Jesus is perfect, but they each give us a reference point of what it looks like to translate encounters into lifestyles. Radical moments into longevity of behavior. The first one I want to talk about is David. I mentioned him a moment ago, King David of Israel. Why do I want to talk about David? Because the Bible talks about a man who is after God's own heart. That man was David. If someone in the Bible is described as being an individual after God's own heart, that makes me want to say, okay, something about his life was pleasing to God over the long haul. And I want to know a little bit more about the interior of his life so I can use it as a reference point, as a model to make part of my interior world, part of my lifestyle, part of my rhythm. So what was it about David that moved God's heart to the degree that he was able to say, David was a man after my own heart? Well, Psalm 27, verse number 4, gives us a, a, a glimpse into David's internal world. Here's what it says about David. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. So David is saying, in this whole big thing, out of everything I could ask God for, this is the one thing that's most important to me. Here's what he says. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now this is a rich verse. We could break it down a lot of ways and by the end of tonight we may come back to it. Lord willing, we'll see. But the way you can summarize it is this. David moved the heart of God by walking the path of simple devotion. He just wanted to be with him. He just wanted to be around him. He just wanted to gaze at him. He just wanted to ask him questions. He, he just walked the path of simple devotion, spending time with God, desire, and that moved God's heart to the degree that he says, you're a man after my own heart. Not only that, but when my son is born into the earth, I want him to share your name. 
So Jesus came not just as the son of God, but as the son of David. It's pretty significant. Now let's consider somebody else in scripture. We looked at David and part of his internal world was simply a desire to be with God. Now let's consider Noah. Now again, when I say Noah, some of you automatically kind of go to nursery murals in your church, right? Noah is like the, the stereotypical, like, you know, children's church guy. All the animals, the ark. You know, have you ever tried to explain the story of Noah to kids? Like, have you really ever thought about the story of Noah? It's like, hey, guys. <laughs> angels came down. And I don't, well, we'll just skip that part. I'll skip that part. But what the angels did when they came down and what happened. Read your Bible. There's way more in it than you expect, okay? There's a famous theologian from Britain. His name is N.T. Wright. He wrote a book called Surprised by Scripture. In other words, there's more in there than you think is in there. Read it. All right, so that's a little homework. Go to Genesis 5, find out what the angels did when they came down. I'm not going to say it. All right, so they come down. Basically, everything gets so wicked, God just kills everybody. I mean, like, how do you explain that to kids? Like the most violent story in Scripture. Hey, God, you know, but it's our nursery murals on the wall. But anyway, so we think about Noah, isn't that cute? Noah and the ark and all that stuff. The Bible in the New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. One from the eight, one of eight from the ancient world who was saved. Noah is so close to the heart of God that he uses Noah as an example of someone who pleases him just to tell other people how mad he is at them. Okay, let me explain that. So Ezekiel chapter 14 there's a moment where God is describing how judgment is inevitable to a city that will not repent. Okay, that's the theme of Ezekiel 14. Judgment is inevitable. If I prophesy to a city, judgment is coming. They do not repent. It is coming. And then he, just to communicate how serious he is, God says this to Ezekiel. Even if these three men were in the city, it wouldn't change my mind. I would deliver them, but not the city. I'm like, okay, who are the three men? He says, even if these three men were in the city, Daniel, Job, and Noah, even for their sake, I would not spare the city. I would get them out of it. Okay, that's pretty intense. Makes me want to study all three of them. Daniel, Job, and Noah. Let's do a study. You know, But so all that to communicate, Noah is close to the heart of God. If God uses Noah to say, I'm so mad at you, I wouldn't even save you for Noah's sake. It's like, Lord, ouch. But Noah's close to the heart of God. And so when I hear that, like David, David was a man after God's own heart. Noah is clearly close to the heart of God. What is it about Noah's internal world? What was it about his life that we would call radical? Because he pleased God to that degree. Well, Genesis chapter 6, verses number, verse 9, gives us an insight into Noah's life. And here's what it says about Noah. Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Genealogy is not just his sons and his daughters and his family line. It's his heritage. It's his legacy, what he left behind. Because it doesn't begin by talking about his sons. It talks about him as a person. This is part of his impact in the earth. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. What is the summary behind Noah's life? He walked with God. 
he walked the path of simple devotion. And because Noah simply walked with God, he found a place close to Noah, close to God's heart. In the scripture before it, it, sounds that, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I think the reason he found grace in the eyes of the Lord is because that's where he was looking. He was looking in the eyes of the Lord and found grace there that empowered him to become a, a forerunner savior of the world. Noah was not the savior of the world, but he is a forerunner. He's a pit, prophetic picture of Jesus who rescues us from the wrath of God. Because in him we find grace. But Noah became that example of someone close to the heart of God. Why? Because he walked with God. The path of simple devotion moves the heart of God and sustains the encounters you experience in him. Now let's consider one more person and then I want to talk to you about the life of simple devotion what it looks like. This character may be less familiar to you, but he actually may be the most radical person in the entire Bible outside of Jesus. His name is Enoch. E-N-O-C-H, Enoch. Why is Enoch a radical person? We don't know much about him, honestly. We've got like one obscure prophecy from him in the book of Jude in the New Testament. All right, like that's, you know, that's kind of there. Um, but we don't know a lot about him other than he just disappeared one day. Like as far as we know, Enoch has still never died. We say Methuselah is the oldest person in the Bible, but I don't know that Enoch's ever died. Because the Bible says in Genesis and in Hebrews that he was not, for God took him. Like, God, God so loved Enoch, he's like, bro, I can't wait on you to die. I just got to take you to heaven right now. I mean, how close to the heart of God must you be for God to just take you? Like, his wife went to find him one day, and she's like, Enoch? It, like, he's just not there. God took him. So I'm like, okay. What was it about Enoch that moved God's heart? Surely it's the man with the greatest miracles. Surely it's the man with the most, most accurate prophetic words. Surely it's the man, you know, that, that is doing the most extreme extended fast that's ever been heard of on the history of the planet. You know, surely it's something like that. Surely there's something spectacular about Enoch that caused God to take him to heaven. What was it about his life? Genesis chapter 5 Starting in verse 21, just a handful of verses that gives us an insight into Enoch's life. And here's what it says. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. So Methuselah is his son. That's a different thought process. We can't get distracted there. After he begot Methuselah, watch this. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch, it says it again, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Basically, all we know about Enoch is he had some kids, released a prophecy that Jude records, and walked with God. For 300 years, he just walked with God. For 300 years, he got up every day, stirred up his soul to walk the path of simple devotion. And something about that simple, consistent behavior moved God to the degree that he said, bro, this time you're not going back to your house, you're coming to my house. And he's still there. He's still there. So, how do we do that? Okay, this, this all sounds great, but what, where does that, what does that look like for us? 
how do we translate even this idea of simple devotion into action that we can apply tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night? How do we make the translation from encounter into lifestyle? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse number 6. What I love about Jesus is that he is not just a preacher, but he is also a teacher. Um, actually, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, yes, he does a lot of preaching for the kingdom of God is at hand. But many times he is going throughout Israel teaching in synagogues about the kingdom of God. And he's really um, j- just an amazing, obviously amazing. I mean, that f- sounds silly to describe Jesus as amazing. Of course he is. But this is a lot of what he does in his ministry. And so Jesus not only tells us to pray... But Jesus teaches us how to pray. And in Matthew 6, 6, he gives us what I call the five disciplines of devotion. You want to know how to live a lifestyle of simple devotion? You want to know how to cultivate these rhythms like David did, like Noah did, like Enoch did? Jesus teaches us how in Matthew 6, 6. So we're going to read it one, one time through. Then I'll go back and identify five disciplines of devotion from Matthew 6, 6. Here's what Jesus says. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The five disciplines of devotion. Number one, here's where we're going to start. The first discipline of devotion is The who of prayer. Say the who of prayer. This is how Jesus starts. But you. You are the who of prayer. The who of prayer is you. Say this with me. I am a person of prayer. Say it again. I am a person of prayer. Doesn't it feel good to say that? Way too often we believe the lie that other people are gifted with prayer and we're not. But prayer is not a gift that God gives to some people and withholds from others. Prayer is a call that God gives to every disciple of Jesus. It's not a gift, it's a decision. You are the who of prayer if you are a disciple of Jesus. You are called to walk the path of simple devotion. You are called like Enoch, like Noah, like David, like Daniel, like Job. You are called to walk with God. So many times we believe the lie that we're not called to prayer. So let me give you just a few ideas here that's going to help you become the who of prayer that God's already called you to be. Do not allow your initial discomfort to make you believe that you're not called to do it. Don't allow your initial discomfort cause you to believe you're not called to do it. Most of the time, our initial discomfort is not a sign of our potential, it's a sign of our neglect. And I'm not saying that harshly, I'm just saying that in a helpful teaching capacity. If we are uncomfortable with something at first, it's not a sign of our potential, it's a sign of our neglect. Now, a few years ago, Delana and I, my wife, we got fired up. We're going to the gym. 
Right? We're going to get in shape. We're going to go work out. And I hate, I despise the first time going to a gym. Because everybody knows you're the new guy at the gym. Because you're just walking around, you see a machine, and you start pushing on it. And then you see this other contraption, and you go to a new gym, even if you've been before, you've never seen a machine like this before. So you're like looking at what muscle group it does, and you're like, do I pull or do I push? And the whole time you're like, I know, I feel those eyes over there from that guy. Like, this ain't his time slot, what's he doing here? You know, it's just uncomfortable. Not only was it uncomfortable just to learn what to do, you're just kind of walking around, and I guess I'll get some ear, everybody's got ear stuff in, i got to listen to music. You're just walking around. Not only is it like you're wandering around, but like just your mind, it hurts. I'll tell you the first time, I can't believe I'm going to tell this story. I hate this story. It's so embarrassing. So I've got a friend in Alabama named Samuel. And I got fired up. I'm like, I'm going to the gym with Samuel. So if you know Samuel, he's just an extreme person. He, ha- he, sa- he has what he calls the plus one uh, uh, syndrome. It, whenever you're supposed to do something, he always, always has to do a little extra, plus one. He always has to do a little extra. So like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym with my friend Samuel, and we're going to do this. I go, and I had heard this quote from a football player, American football player, that said, the reason I became a great football player is because I never said no when a coach asked me to do something. Now, I've not been in the gym since, like, high school, but I'm like, that's going to be me. Anything Samuel tells me to do, I'm doing it 100%. I'm not saying no to anything. It's my first day in the gym in like years. So I get there and we go for a strong 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, that was a good workout. And Samuel's like, what are you, I, I'm about to go get my stuff to go. He's like, what are you doing? We're not, go, we're not leaving yet. Like we just got started. We're going over to this set of machines. And I am terrified. <laughs> but I got this quote from the football player in my head. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. Anything he says to do. So we spend forever in the gym. As I'm leaving, the nausea settles in. I am so nauseous because my muscles are confused about what just happened to my body. I'm, I'm like over the steering wheel barely getting home. When I get home, I stumble out into my house and I lay in my living room floor. Now, I didn't even have any gym clothes. I didn't have anything appropriate. I was wearing like an old t-shirt with some splattered paint on it, all right? So I'm laying there on the floor. My oldest son, Jack, walks in. He sees me, and I hear him just go, Mom, Mom, Dad needs you. He's not okay. Because I'm laying there. I had that splatter. He thought I had vomited all over myself. So I come, are you okay? I'm like, the gym, Samuel. You know, so she makes me some breakfast, and I'm so nauseous that I'm like eating. I'm trying to eat these eggs, and I'm like eating, and I'm about to vomit. And it was just terrible. Not to mention for a week, it felt like knives were sticking out of my, like my biceps. Now, the reason it was so uncomfortable is not because God didn't make me with the potential of being in shape. The reason why it was so uncomfortable is because I had neglected that activity for so long, I didn't know what to do, and I was very uncomfortable trying to do it. And that's exactly what many of us experience in prayer. We go to prayer, we're kind of like, all right, Jesus said, could you not watch with me one hour? Let's try it. 
And you're in there for a minute, and it's like so uncomfortable. You don't know what to do. You're kind of bumbling around, you know. And, but, and here's what I want to encourage you. If it's uncomfortable at first, stick with it. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean you're not called to do it. It just means that you've got to find a rhythm. You've got to find your way, all right? So let me give you three ideas for how to grow into being the person of prayer God's called you to be. Three ideas. And I didn't, these are not original to me. I got them from Pastor Stacy Reeser, all right? She taught them years ago. And it's this progression, discipline, desire, delight. Discipline, desire, delight. When you begin to develop the disciplines of devotion, it begins as a discipline. A discipline is something that you don't want to do, but you're doing it because you know you need to do it. And what I have found is if you're not willing to embrace the discipline aspect of prayer, you will never break through into the delight of prayer. Most of the time, your prayer life begins not because you sp like a spontaneous fire erupts in your heart and you just wake up one morning just on your knees praying. It's because you set your alarm or you set aside the time. I'll talk about that in just a moment, your schedule side. But you just, it's a decision, it's a discipline that you say yes to. And what happens is as you stay faithful to the discipline of prayer, you begin to find that your desire for prayer begins to grow. When you employ a discipline long enough, it becomes odd if you don't do the discipline that you began. And that's the desire phase. It's like, okay, I may not be in delight, but, I, but I've applied this for, for a, 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 in a way now that I feel awkward not doing it. There's a desire. And as you're faithful to steward the desire, you begin to break into the arena of delight. And let me say this. Sometimes that, that progression, discipline, desire, delight, that's not just your big picture lifestyle, like next five years is discipline, next five is desire, last however long is delight. That, that sometimes that progression is for me every single day. Like, I don't begin prayer every day in delight. I just don't. Most of the time it's discipline, like, all right, got to go do it. But you begin, and sometimes we're so weird about anything that feels like effort. But that's just part of a discipline. And so you begin prayer because you know you're called to do it. And sometimes, again, that progression is on a daily basis. I begin in discipline. Then as I begin to, you know, stay in a place of prayer, desire begins to grow. You break into that arena of delight. Let me share one story on this. And I won't spend as long as on each discipline. I know you guys are thinking, like, he's got four more of these. You know, uh, it's not going to be that long on each one. Let me say this. Pastor Stacy told a story years ago at the ramp. She said when she was a, uh, um, uh, a I don't know how old you were a young girl, that she, uh, <laughs> I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know how old you were. She said she had heard some kind of teaching on spending time with God in prayer. So she thought to herself, okay, for the next five days, I'm going to set aside 30 minutes to spend time with God in my bedroom by myself. Just me and God for 30 minutes for the next five days. She said, day one, whoa, that was uncomfortable. Day two, uncomfortable. Day three, dry, boring, uncomfortable. Day four, terrible. God, what am I? She said, but something happened on day five. All of a sudden, on day five, as she began to seek the Lord, boom, his presence comes in a manifested way. 
And to me, that story always encouraged me because as we are faithful to discipline, we grow in desire and we break through into delight. So don't allow the uncomfortability of the initial engagement to keep you from doing it again. Discipline, desire, delight. Okay, so that's number one, the who of prayer. Finally, number two. Number two is the but you, when you pray. Number two is the when of prayer. The when of prayer. So number one is the who of prayer. That's you. Number two is the when of prayer. W-H-E-N. The when of prayer. And here's what I simply want to say about the when of prayer. You need to schedule it. You need to get intentional with it. We have a friend. Her name is Missy. And she would always say this about prayer. She said, if you don't schedule prayer, then you'll always talk about prayer but never actually pray. It's an idea that's kind of in your Christian ease, but it's not an action. And so a lot of times the reason we have an underdeveloped prayer life is just because we never got intentional enough to actually like put it on our schedule. And again, sometimes we shirt from that because like, well, that feels too, that feels too something. No, it's not about being stuffy, it's about being intentional. Anything that you want to grow in, you have to get intentional about. So Jesus didn't say, if you pray, he said, when you pray. Way too many of us don't have prayer every day because we have an if rather than a when. If we don't have a when to our prayer life, we fall into what's called the tyranny of the urgent. That we would like to pray each day, but everything else that pops up just claims our attention over and over and over again. So you've got to get intentional with your time management and say, I have to erase the if from my prayer life, and I have to establish a win to my prayer life. So some homework for you is to identify your win. Identify within your schedule on a daily basis what does it look like for you to spend time with God? Because if you don't know when it's going to happen, most likely it's not going to happen. All right? But you, when you pray. Third discipline of devotion, Jesus says, go into your room. For that one, I call it the where of prayer. The who of prayer is you. The when of prayer you must schedule. The where of prayer you must find. Jesus said, go into your room. In other words, go into the place where you know you can pray. If you don't have a time to pray and you don't have a place to pray, it's going to be very hard to be a person of prayer. It's amazing to me how much, Jesus, how much God is interested in physical spaces. Like, why didn't he just tell the children of Israel, I'm with you, just go to the promised land. No, he does a major like stop at a mountain to give them instructions about a tabernacle where he's going to dwell with them. He wanted a physical space where they could come in and allow their hearts to be focused solely on him. You need not only times of prayer, you need places of prayer. Now again, being in the UK, I now understand firsthand how limited space is. Very limited. So I want to encourage you to get creative with it. For many of you, your place of prayer is going to be your bedroom. For many of you, it's going to be the recept one of the reception rooms in your house. This is why you have to find a win. Because my where of prayer can only be a where of prayer because of my win of prayer. 
All right, get, does that make sense? Like if my win of prayer was at a different time, my where of prayer would have my entire family in there. Now we can pray together as a family, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about simple devotion, you and God. So you need a when and a where that work together for you to seek after God. So you need a time of prayer and you need a place of prayer. Ideally somewhere in your house or somewhere where you're living that you can lock in with God. But I want to encourage you to get creative and find other places to pray. Our, you know, the, the, the leader of the ramp in Alabama, Pastor Karen, she of course has places to pray in her house. But she also has a place called the Old Dirt Road. Where she walks with God behind her house and it's a wide open space to simply pray. When I was in university in North Alabama, I had my apartment. I had an apartment all to myself, a flat all to myself. And that was my, I mean, that was my where, right? I mean, just like praying and just focused on God. I loved it. But I also wanted a place to play on universe, a place to pray on the university campus. Something about that makes you feel like more like a revivalist or something. Like I got to pray like on the campus, you know. And so I went, I went looking around the campus, like, where can I go to pray? So there was this old building called Willingham Hall. Now, in America, old means 60 years, all right? That's what it means. I, I heard this uh, description one time. The difference between an American and the British is that Americans think 100 years is a long time, and the British think 100 miles is a long way. So, you know, just a little insight into our psychology. So it was like, this building is so old. It was built in 19. You know, so I go to this building, and I notice that the basement of the building is marked off with caution tape. And I thought, perfect, no one's going to be in the basement of Willingham Hall. So I go down there, and it is, like, vibey. It's cool. It's, like, dilapidated, falling apart. There wasn't Instagram, but I would have taken so many pictures down there back then if there was. And I'm walking around, and I'm like, this is a great place to pray. So I'm, I'm just, you know, walking with God, crying out to God. I notice in a week I start developing this cough. Well, the next day, I read in the school newspaper, all students stay out of the basement of Willingham Hall. It is infested with asbestos, and it is a hazard to your health. So I quickly found another place to pray after that. But the reason why I like telling that story is because, because of this reality. A place to pray is so important, it's worth you taking the time to find it. Like, I, I live in this neighborhood called Old Trafford. All right. When we're walking through Old Trafford, I'm constantly looking around like, I can go over in that part to pray. I can go over there. There's not that, um, this time of day, there's not that many people. I'm always looking around for places to pray. You need to get creative and find places where you can meet with God. So let me say this, one last idea on this one, then I'll move on. The secret place should not just be a metaphor to you. You ought to have actual secret places where you meet with God. The secret place should not just be a metaphor. Now, it is a metaphor, of course, for the, 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 the language between you and God within your heart. But it shouldn't just be a metaphor. You should actually have secret places with you and God. The who of prayer is you. The when of prayer you need to schedule. The where of prayer you need to find. Number four, the how of prayer. Jesus teaches us how to pray. But you, when you pray, Go into your room, number four, the how of prayer, and when you have shut the door. The how of prayer is learning to shut the door. So if you're taking notes, you can simply write down shut the door. The how of prayer is learning to shut the 
door. Let me give you three keys to shutting the door. So like Pastor Joe this morning who had three points within other three or four points, I have three points within my fourth point. So I hope it doesn't get too confusing your numbering system in your journals, okay. So three keys to shutting the door. Number one, be unavailable. Be unavailable to exterior pressures. Be unavailable to other people. Now, of course, let me just say as a disclaimer, I get it. For those of you that are, that are married, you have family members, I get there is a level of accessibility that people need to have to you on that. I get that. But what I'm saying in general is you need to find a time and you need to find a place where you can be unavailable to people. You just interact with God differently when you're not constantly worried about whether or not you're going to be interrupted. You just, you just interact with God differently. In other words, let me... There's a scripture in Jeremiah 29 that says, you will seek for me and you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. A lot of times we're not finding God in the place of prayer because we're so accessible to other people that we're not giving him all of our heart, all of our attention, all of our time. The greatest, the, one of the most healthy things you can do for yourself and for others is to find a time and a space to be unavailable and spend time with God. So the first key to shutting the door is be unavailable to other people. Find a time and a place where you can shut the door. Number two, be undistracted. Now, this one is much more difficult than number one. I mean, it's hard to find a time to be unavailable. But it's equally difficult, if not more difficult, to find a time to be undistracted. Why? Because we can shut a door physically. It's very hard to shut a door mentally. And this is where I want to encourage you not to get discouraged in the progression from discipline to desire to delight. The more you, the more you frequent the place of prayer, the more you will learn how to shut the door in your mind and be undistracted. There are ways to learn to be undistracted. Many of you will use music in the place of prayer. That is a great way to immediately capture your thoughts and direct them into an avenue of pursuit. Many times in prayer, I will start with Bible reading first because it immediately captures my mind and brings me into a place of focusing on the kingdom of God. Some people keep um, little notepads beside them when they pray. Why? Because there's something about prayer that reminds you of all of the unfinished tasks. Like you're like, oh Lord, I, my, my water bill. Did I, did I? And so I've heard one per person say it like this. Keep a notepad beside you in prayer. When the thought comes, write it down and go right back to praying. Another, th another way that you can learn to be undistracted is the moment you realize your mind is wandering. Because sometimes it takes you to realize a while to realize it. Sometimes you're like praying in the spirit. And you, you all of a sudden come to yourself and you're like, for the last five minutes, I have not been thinking about God. What am I doing? And if you're not careful, you immediately begin to condemn yourself over that. And then you extend the time of your distraction because you're like, I'm such an idiot. God, I'm trying to be David. No wonder you're not taking me to heaven like Enoch. I can't even think about it. And so one of the ways that you learn to be undistracted is the moment you realize you're distracted, you say, Lord, forgive me. I'm here because I want my mind on you. Help me to do that. And the quicker you learn to shake off the, the self-condemnation is actually one of the ways in which you learn how to sustain focus in the place of prayer. 
Okay, so you got to learn to be undistracted. So different ways to learn how to do that, but I want to put that encouragement in front of you. Be unavailable, a time and a place to spend time with God. Be undistracted. And then the third one is really key for learning how to shut the door. Be personal and private. Be personal and private. The reason why you shut doors is because things happen behind a shut door that no one else needs to see. And so the reason why I believe Jesus tells you shut the door in prayer is because what happens between you and God is not for everybody else. And way, for way too long, I struggled in prayer personally because I was always comparing my time of prayer to what I thought other people's time of prayer probably looked like. Like, I've seen so-and-so pray, like, at Ramp Church before. I bet their prayer times look like this. And I would feel so condemned in the place of personal prayer because I couldn't find that gear that I saw other people in in corporate prayer. And let me just tell you this. My, my personal prayer life rarely looks like my corporate prayer life. Not because the corporate prayer life is fake. It's because this is a, it's a different assignment in corporate prayer. It, its focal point is declaration and intercession and agreement. And if I'm not physically engaging so that the room can come into agreement, then it's almost like there's no point in me being in corporate prayer. Personal prayer is not about me along with others in a place of declaration, intercession, and agreement. Though the Lord may lead me to intercession and personal prayer, it's much more about heart connection with the Father and cultivating that. I'll get into the why, why in just a moment. But, but the heart, cultivating the heart connection with the Father. So stop judging your personal prayer life up against what you don't actually know about other people's personal prayer life. Because if you constantly do that, you're always going to feel defeated and you're constantly opening the door to the voice of accusation. And I want to tell you, your personal prayer life is going to go through, ebbs, it's going to be an ebb and flow. There have, there have been times where there was one album that was speaking so much to me, I would put on this one particular album and just lay on the floor and like cry. And that, that was it. That was my time with God. There are other times where I start in the Word and this, uh, there's a certain psalm that gets a hold of me. And the rest of the time it's just like, like I can't get out of that song. That's where I am the whole time. There are other times where I wake up and God's speaking to me. I had a dream or I see something in scripture. And the entire prayer time is nothing but journaling because God's speaking. And it's okay to have this, this just very organic thing to your prayer life. I heard one, one person teaching on prayer and he said it like this. He said, when you go out on a date with your spouse or whoever you're interested, it doesn't always look the same. And that's okay you just spend time together, that's the point. So how do you grow in prayer? You shut the door, you find a time and a place where you can be unavailable. You learn to become undistracted, though, hey, it, your mind's going to wander a bit. I, I get it. But you'll learn the discipline that takes into desire and to delight. Then number three, you learn to be personal and private. How does God want to interact with you? And that takes me to the last point of prayer that Jesus teaches on in this verse, I'm about to wrap with this. But you, the who of prayers you, when you pray, schedule it. The where of prayer, find it. Shut the door, that's the how of prayer. The number five is the why of prayer. The why of prayer. And here's what Jesus says. But you, when you pray, go into your room, when you shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the 
secret place. Notice that. Pray to the Father who is in the secret place. The why of prayer is time spent with the Father. The reason you become the person, schedule the time, find the place, and shut the door, is not so you can finally get to prayer and earn God's presence. The reason why you do the other four disciplines is when you finally get to the secret place, he's already there waiting on you. Jesus didn't say go to the secret place, and once you cry out long enough, he'll show up. He says when you shut the door, then begin to pray to the Father. Why? Because he was already in the secret place waiting on you. Let me say this about personal prayer. In the place of simple devotion, relationship takes precedent over request. In the place of simple devotion, relationship takes precedent over request. And again, I learned this from Pastor Stacy Reeser. She taught a message one time about growing in prayer. And she said she came to the realization at one moment in her walk with God that every prayer meeting felt like a business meeting. She said, every time I came to prayer, it's like I pulled out my briefcase and like, all right, God, it's time to get down to business. And she said, if I had to describe what my perpetual face of prayer looked like, it would be this. <laughs> she said, and I realized, God, you don't want to always see that face when I come to you, do you? <laughs> when Pastor Stacy's taught on that, it, it put inside of me this desire to say, yes, Lord, there are times and places for that, absolutely. Again, especially corporately, that's a lot of the reason why we're praying together, is to see you know, kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in this place of personal relationship with the Father, what is it? I don't know. It's just cultivating time with the Father. Now, there is reward to that. The rest of the verse keeps going. And your Father who sees the secret will reward you openly. There is fruit that comes out of this. But the why behind it is we love the secret place because the Father is in the secret place. And it's about getting intentional to cultivate devotion. Again, this is not legalism to try to be accepted by God through your disciplines. It is intentionality behind your relationship so you cannot just have encounters with God, but translate them into a lifestyle with longevity, like David, like Noah, like Enoch. As the band comes, let's go one more time to Psalm 27, verse 4. And it's kind of, this, this part is just kind of a little extra. Because it's a little more of a description of the how of prayer, the why of prayer. And David captures it really well. I love what David says in Psalm 27 verse 4. He puts, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. Breaking down the verse, I love that he not only desires something, he seeks what he desires. The encounter comes to awaken desire. The disciplines come to seek what the encounter awakened. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. When you encounter God, desire is awakened. Then you employ these disciplines that Jesus taught us in order to seek the desire that God initiated. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 27, 4, is he says, one thing have I desired. But if you look at the verse, he lists three things. You ever thought about that? One thing have I desired, and then he goes on to list three things. David, I thought he said one thing. He's describing three facets of this one thing. 
the one thing is simple devotion. The one thing is, is this rhythm we're talking about of walking with God. But there are three facets that he describes. And I love these three facets because, again, it teaches us a little bit more about the how and the why of prayer. What are the three facets to walking with God that David describes? One thing if I desire, the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The first facet, I just want to be with him. So my question to you is, where are you staying? Where are you staying? Dwell. I just want to be with him. So aspect number one is walking with God. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Aspect number two, to behold the beauty of the Lord. So David said, I just want to be with him. I just want to look at him. I want to gaze upon him. I want my heart to consider him, to ponder him, to see him, to know him. So, number one, where are you staying? Number two, where are you gazing? I want to be with him. And I want to see him through the eyes of revelation. But he doesn't just stop by saying, dwell and behold. One thing if I desire of the Lord, and that will I seek. Number one, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Number two, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And then I love this part, the number three, and to inquire in his temple. In other words, David's going, I want to be with him, and I want to see him. And then I'm curious. I got some questions for him. I want, I want to investigate who he is. I want to find out what he's up to. I want to find out what he's like. I want to live with these crazy tensions of Bible verses that don't make sense. And I bring him into his presence and the atmosphere of pursuit and say, God, what are you even talking about? That's part of walking with God. It's not just dwelling and beholding. It's inquiring. So my question is to you, where are you staying? Where are you gazing? And what questions are you asking? Are they questions about his kingdom? Are there questions about his word? Have you encountered him in such a way that your curiosity has led you into deeper pursuit? Because walking with God is not just a static worship experience. It's about an ongoing, eternal investigation. Saying, I want to know who you are. I'm hungry for you. I got some questions I want to ask. This kingdom that I'm praying about. What's it like? What are you doing? God, I'm inquiring of your heart. And those three facets of walking with God, they move God to the degree that said, that, that's it. That's it, David. That's what I'm looking for. Someone who wants to be with me, someone who wants to see me. And you know what, David? I'm not annoyed by your questions. I want you to ask them. I like them. If you would stand on your feet tonight, I've taught on the disciplines of devotion, but I believe tonight the way we're gonna end is God wants to reawaken or rekindle the desire for devotion. I believe tonight there's an opportunity to make a movement to the altar right where you are to say, God, <laughs> ah, I don't have all the disciplines down yet. I'm like Micah walking around the gym. I'm looking really awkward and uncomfortable, but Lord, even before I have the disciplines, I want to express my desire and say, God, I want to be with you. God, I want to be with you. So the next few moments as the team leads us, I want to invite you to come to this altar, find a place to pray. Maybe it's right there in your seat. And begin to let God reawaken on those desires of your heart to breathe on you afresh. 
And let's pray, God, make us a Psalm 27 for people. Lord, we want to have the, the one thing focus that David had. Lord, to walk with you, to dwell with you, to behold you, and to inquire of your heart. So, Father, tonight, we ask that you would breathe afresh on the desire within us to walk with you. Lord, we don't want to settle for a few spectacular moments. We don't want to have just a journal full of encounters, but no lifestyle to show for it. God, we want to be like David, like Enoch, like Noah. We want to walk with you like Adam in the cool of the day. We want to hear your voice. So, Father, breathe afresh on our desires. We want to be with you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.